Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh. Huh. Okay, sir, you're a Lebowski, I'm a Lebowski. That's terrific. But I am very busy, as I imagine you are. What can I do for you, sir? Uh, well, sir, it's, uh, this rug I have. It really tied the room together. Uh... You told Brandt on the phone, he told me. Where do I fit in? Well, uh, they were they were looking for you, these two guys. Uh, you know, I'll they... say it again. You told Brandt on the phone. He told me. I know what happened. Yes, yes. Oh, so you know that they were trying to piss on your rug. Did I urinate on your rug? You mean, did you personally come and pee on my rug? Hello. Do you speak English, sir? Parla usted inglés? I'll ask you again. Did I urinate on your rug? No, like I said, woo. Peed on my rug. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is micturated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person. Come on, man. I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Uh, you know, I, I'm just. Uh... You're just looking for a handout like every other. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Hey, this is Dan Murphy of All Good Things, and you're listening to The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott. Thank you. 
Hey everybody, what's going on? It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're doing well, staying safe and staying healthy. Got another episode for you to enjoy today. Once again, as always, I mentioned we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check out their platform with some wonderful fellow music podcasters like Mistress Carrie out in Boston, Carmen Apice and Vinny Apice have a show that uh, is just awesome. Martin Popoff, the rock in, uh, and metal historian, as well as Shout Out Loudcast, Tom and Zeus, and Cobras in Fire, as well as many others. Just a great platform. You can find them on PantheonPodcast.com. And also follow me on Twitter at, at The Hook Rocks on Facebook. You can like us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. And as I always say, thank you very much for listening and tuning in. We've got a great interview for you today, one that you'll enjoy, one that many of my listeners have been asking about, and that is from Triumph, Mr. Mike Levine. How are you doing today, Mike? What's going on? I'm doing just fine, Jay. And yourself? I'm doing well. You know, it is uh, beginning of June, it's sunny out, and it's warm, and hopefully we've, we've turned a corner with COVID, and uh, hopefully things just continue to get better. Yeah, well, from your lips to God's ears. Yes, absolutely. So we always begin the same way every time we have a first-time guest on the show, and that is the essence of the podcast. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock band has a moment, whether it's a song, a band, an album, or performance. What hooked you on rock and roll? Oh, God. I would say, I guess the uh, early days of uh, of uh, top forty. You know, I'm getting hot in years, and that's what we grew up on. Little transistor radio with an earpiece. That kind of is what everybody uses today, anyway. But uh, uh, just just the songs of the, the hit singles, I guess. Everything from uh, you, you know pre Beatles. Uh, just great songs. Um, you know, it's hard to remember all the bands that you listen to, but those songs you still hear in grocery stores on it's in the it's in the fifties and you sing along. So uh, it's it's amazing how those songs stick with you and it's part of the soundtrack of your life. You know, so uh, just listening to radio and, and and hearing hearing great music and being a kid and being in love and being touched by a song and meeting girls, all that. You know, so. I guess it's uh, Top 40 Radio is really the, the, the embracing moment for me in music. When did it become the, when did your journey start that you wanted to be in a band? That would have been, I would guess say the Beatles at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And not being able to hear a word they sang because they were using the house PA system where they used to announce penalties and goals for it. Penalty number two. Uh, this was yeah. horrible. You couldn't hear anything. And, and on top of that, every girl in the place was screaming. And you looked around you and you went, ah, the way to get girls is to be in a rock band. What were some of the bands that influenced you, especially playing bass and, and in performing? Just a lot, you know. Um, Zeppelin, of course, uh, Hendrix, Hendrix band, uh, Noel Redding, great bass player, The Who, John Entwistle, uh, you know, Zeppelin, John Paul Jones, the most underrated bass player in the world. Yeah. You know, by, by far, by far, by far. 
you know, so all those great, uh, the, the great early rock bands, and, and Paul McCartney for that matter, Bill Wyman, eh, not so much, but you know, he was a, a very good player too for the Stones. You know, he fit right in. I, you know, he's kind of like me, I guess. You know, you find a, a niche in a band and you become kind of the glue that holds it all together. And I, th- I think you could take Lyman and, and give him that. And you could take uh, uh, John Paul Jones and give him that too, you know? Yeah, I've always, you know, I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan. And I've always thought that about John Paul Jones is that he was the glue that put all those guys together. I mean, he was the one that did all the arrangements. He's the one that, you know, you have to remember, Bonham really did play to Jimmy Page. He didn't play to John Paul Jones. So John Paul Jones had to find his spot and had really kind of play along with that, which is, which is challenging as a bass player. Yeah, especially, but you know what? It's sometimes as a bass player, you don't pay attention to the drummer anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about Allied Forces. Um, this is an album growing up that was always present with all the kids that I was hanging out with at the park or at someone's house. Um, you know, we just did a, a, a podcast about the Us Festival in 1983, which, you know, this album came out before that. But this really propelled Triumph into superstardom during that period of time. It was such a great album. It had such a, you know, it was this band from Canada. And, and up until then, we we only knew about Rush and we only you know, listen to that. But then here was this new three-piece band that had more of a, a rock edge to it instead of a proggy edge. And there were elements of prog in your music, but it was mostly rock. Here we are looking back 40 years from now. Why do you think this album still resonates today? Um, you know, I, I think like great records are like great songs. Uh, and I think the great songs really are the ones that drive the great record image too. You know, so... You have to have a, a really, really good or a great song to be for anybody to pay attention to you, really, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be radio or fans or anything else. Uh, you know, you have to have uh, great hooks, so to speak. <laughs> um, it was uh, very, very important. So uh, oh, with the way we grew our fan base was through touring, live shows. You know, it's, and uh, the Just a Game album really, you know, embraced our... Uh, Radio, rock radio in America embraced us quite heavily with Hold On and Lay It On The Line off that album and kind of set it all up for for the Allied Forces record, which, uh, you know, I, I can't explain why it worked other than it was a really great record and you could put it on on side one. And by the time you got through that, uh, all of side one, you wanted to turn it over and, and play it side two. And to me, that's what makes a great album, per se that you want to listen all the way through. Because a lot of times for me, I'd listen to side one and go, ah, that's enough and throw it away. Because <laughs> I didn't, it, it, I didn't, I wasn't inspired to turn the record over. When you think about just the game and you think about Allied Forces and then after that, Never Surrender. I mean, those are really kind of the three albums that really, you know, chronologically really brought you to the forefront of rock music at that time. And Allied Forces was in the middle of that. What was, uh, besides those two albums, you know, which are great, you know, they stand, they, they stand on their own themselves, but as far as Allied Forces go, I mean, you know, Fight the Good Fight, Magic pow- Power, all these songs that kind of connected with people, what was it about that album that 40 years later we're celebrating it with a box set, a special edition, you know, remastered version, where, you know, the other albums are considered great, but this is really kind of a special album for Triumph. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was by far, not by far, but it was our biggest selling record. And certainly it made, uh, you know, we stamped our, our ticket to the, to, to the big time, so to speak, with that album. And uh, uh, every, if when you t- people talk Triumph, they go, you know, when I ask them, what's your favorite Triumph record? You get a variety of answers, but the bulk of them would be Allied Forces. And uh, because it was uh, it was a special record in its own way, you know, because it had the great songs on it. I think MTV helped a little bit push that through as well. Um, you know, early on, we were the most, when MTV went live on air in maybe 20 markets, uh, we were the most played act on MTV for a while because we had, we had videos from dated back to the 70s that we had made. So, uh, you know, that certainly helped from an image point of view. I know I'm getting off topic here, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. You know, because that was really important to bands back then, too, was MTV Airplay. It was a new platform. It was something that was different in how we absorbed music. You started to listen more with your eyes instead of your ears. And during those early periods of MTV, bands like Triumph, bands like you know, Y&T and Judas Priest and all these bands that, you know, were really coming out of Europe and also part of, you know, California and then also you guys as well in Canada, found a platform to connect with young people because young people were kind of maybe turning away from radio and using MTV as an avenue to find music. How was that different? Was that ever, did that ever play a part into how you were writing music or how you were, how you were visually portraying the music? Um. You know, we had a philosophy that, uh, you know, music uh, was and is and always should be theater of the mind. And uh, so we did live videos until we had no choice but to do a concept, conceptual video, mm-hmm. where you painted a picture uh, for, for a fan that maybe loved the song a different way than we painted the picture. If they just had heard it on the radio, they had their own picture in their mind. And... Uh, uh, it's, it, for me, it was always sad when we, when we did concept videos. I went, this is like, I'd rather go for root canal than screw around on this ship. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, hurry up and wait, you're shooting a movie. Now, sure, there's some entertainment value. Sure, there is, uh, uh, you, you, you may gain a fan or two because you had a good looking girl in the video or something. But, uh, uh, you know, live videos to me, I want to see what the band is. That was the whole idea, I thought, of you know, MTV. Cause there was no concept videos for the first two or three years. It was all live stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was the theater of the live was even better because you saw the band playing it as opposed to just hearing them play it. But you still heard the song the same way. And you created your own images and your own feelings and it touched you in a certain way. Yeah, it was interesting because I remember as a kid basically absorbing Cervix Circus Magazine and Hip Parader. As my mom was at the grocery store, I'd hit the magazine section. And that was really the only way that we saw the rock stars, right? You know, other than the back, you know, picture on the album, um, that was, you know, flipping through that, checking out all these magazines. And when the video started to become a thing, it gave us another, like, oh, wow, these guys are performing live so bands like triumph the had live videos or you remember the van halen videos from the fair warning album that were all recorded live it gave us a sense of what it was like in the atmosphere and i think that kind of grew the the mystique and the lore of rock music because you saw these larger than life personas on stage and these kids in the crowd with their fists in the air and their hands in the air and yelling and screaming 
it, it was like, this is the place to be. This is where you wanted to be, you know, as a kid and Triumph was a part of that. When you were, you know, be, beginning the, this platform with MTV, you know, every, I think it seems like bands were kind of feeling that era out and MTV was kind of figuring out what direction they wanted to go to. They really latched on to hard rock in the beginning. People don't remember that. And when you did, you know, I know I just asked you how it affected you, you know, and visually, but what was the thought process for Triumph? Did you guys really take this serious at that time? Or did you think it was just a fad that would go away? Um, you know, we, we thought it was something that was going to last. Uh, you know, we knew we had to address it and be partners with them as much as possible. Good news for us was that a lot of our radio friends that we had made buddies with over the years uh, ended up being at MTV. Whether, whether a programming position or an executive position, whether it was John Sykes or Tom Hunter, uh, those guys I still remember that they would support us, you know, and we support them. You know, our God knows how many times I went to New York and was on some MTV show, uh, early on just to, you know, create the, the, the imaging and they'd call and we'd show up, you know, cause it was a very good partnership until it got really out of control at MTV. I thought anyway, but. Uh, they blew out all, all all the good rock people and started with, um, you know, basically what I'll call multi-musical uh, programming. And it went everything from, from, it didn't matter. It could be Joe Baez to, uh, uh, to Scorpions to uh, Blue Cheer, you know, or whatever. It's, uh, it, it just became uh, not a non-focused entity, I thought. Yeah. 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 I think it, it started to appeal to, you know, certain demographics, whereas being a kid growing up, it was almost like visual radio. It was visual rock radio. And, you know, it, it almost started to mirror each other. Then MTV started to lead radio where things were breaking on MTV and then rock radio in your local market would pick that up and start playing it. But it was a, it was a tool that kind of worked together with radio. And that's when I think it was at its best. You know, I I think that's when it was really like a cool thing because you'd see the video and then you'd get in the car with your dad or your mom and then they, you know, you'd turn on the rock radio station and you'd hear the song. You'd be like, oh, this is so cool, you know. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. But coming off the album Progressions of Power, um, going into Allied Forces Sessions, was there something that you guys were trying to do differently? Was there, you know, what was the evolution of the band at that time? Uh, you know, we, we, on Progressions of Power, we wanted to toughen the band up a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of our songs were, uh, for lack of a better description, I guess, uh, kind of, uh, hard pop rock at times. You know, it's, uh, it had a little bit of poppiness to them, but still, still kept a good, a good hard bass around it. And uh, we thought Progressions of Power would, 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 would toughen us up a bit. And, uh, but it did, you know, we learned a lot of, we learned a lot making that record and, uh, uh, it, it actually, it didn't sell as well as, as just a game record, but it got us, it got us a lot more fans as well on the road. So that was incredibly helpful. And, uh, uh, with Allied Forces, we decided, you know, we need to focus on what the band does best, which is nothing. We do everything we do is different so you can't you know there's a bit of an orchestral pop in us there's the you know the classic guitar pieces that ricky did all the time the 
the really hard upbeat rock and roll stuff. Uh, you know, so we could do anything really, and the fans would take it as long as we didn't get too far afield. I think. And Allied Forces, we tried to stay within, uh, not go too far afield, and stay within um, what really we thought the essence of Triumph was. And we've become better in the studio. We've become better as songwriters. We have become better as record producers. And we had our own studio for that record too. So we had built Metalworks. And, uh, you know, so we were in the position of having to look at the clock like, oh, we can only spend, you know, another $500 on, on uh, the song because oh, we're running out of money making the record. So basically, we had carte blanche to, to make the record, other than the only uh, limit was how many songs we could use and uh, uh, what the deadline was for delivery to the record company. So we got to spend a lot more time in development, development of the song. You know, we could rehearse it on the floor of the studio, record a quick demo of it, go to the control room, listen to it and go, hey, that's going to work. We just need to do this, this, and this, or that's going to be a piece of garbage ever, you know, forever, forever. You know, no point wasting any more time out of throwing up. Did you find that, you, you know, the, the the relaxed nature, like you just mentioned, like not being stressed out and worried about, you know, the clock and paying for it. Um, when you started processing this album, did it start from, you're getting in the studio. Did it start from writing, or were you guys writing on the road prior to that? Did you guys come in with anything? Uh, I don't think there's, as I recall, anyway. I think that we came off the road. We took a month off to to, to chill and write, and not not even look at each other. Uh, and then we you know, we got together in the studio. And we, who, who had ideas? Who came up with anything during our month? You know, and Gil would have a guitar riff that he get Rick to play and go. Okay, that's cool. Don't no, play this instead. Do that here. Do that there. And 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 Rick would go. No, what about this? And so there'd be a good collaboration there because we did have the time off, and nobody really had enough time to sit down and really write a lot of songs either. So a lot of the a lot of the writing actually took place in the studio for that. A lot of it, you know, was during the album. People, you know, we take a week off and just kind of get away from it all. And Rick would write something, write a verse and a chorus of something. And bring it in. He goes, what do you think, guys? We go, yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's work on that for a while. So there was always new, fresh ideas coming in. We talk a lot about the record industry now and how bands are not allowed to develop anymore. You know, they, they've got to come out right out of the gate and, you know, produce a hit single or produce followers, subscribers, views. Now it's all, it's all the important thing. And even before that, you know, as you look at, you know, towards the end of the 80s rock, 90s rock movement, if you weren't producing in that first album, record companies were dropping you. It was a different time when Triumph came out and Allied Forces was your fourth studio album. How, you know, what was the relationship with the record company in terms of allowing you guys to grow and become more confident in who you were and finding your sound that ultimately culminated with the success of Allied Forces? Um, you know, we had we were signed initially to uh, a small independent label in Canada, a company called Attic Records. Uh, they had the foresight to sign us before we even had a band, so <laughs> they were entitled to make some dough along the way. Uh, and a good friend of mine was uh, was one of the partners there. Uh, so you know, our our first album, you know, we slugged it out and we used every song we possibly could that we had. 
and the Alpine Gold in Canada, which was great. And also, we got a lot of traction in South Texas and San Antonio and Corpus Christi and Austin. On import, hard rock radio down there was a was an institution. Up, but this was 1976. You know, it was it, there was an institution there. So, uh, you know, we had traction with a lot of major labels in America that uh, were paying attention to us. So, and this is really odd. I mean, we were good enough. Yeah, I didn't think anyway. But the second album went, you know, hugely double platinum in Canada. Again, big, no, no American deal yet. Uh, but we did off that album end up with our American deal with RCA Records, who signed us because they didn't have, you know, the nickname for them was Record Cemetery of America, <laughs> uh, where you go to die. You're, you're finished. Yeah. Let's just sign there. Uh, but they had uh, a want, at least the field staff had a want for, for rock. They understood that, that uh, you know, the branch in St. Louis and the branch in Dallas, the branch in Chicago, uh, and the one in Boston and New York, they died for rock records because they were rock records sold. You know, and RCA was pretty much Elvis and a few singles. That was it on, the, on that label. And, and country was big with RCA. So we had a lot of support from the, the field guys, and and they after we signed, and we did uh, you know they did a, a a mishmash of the first two albums for our first American release, which came out just to put it on the market, but really the first release for them was it was uh, just a game, which was a, a, almost almost a platinum album, you know. So really they looked at us as uh, you know a, a huge money maker out of the gate, really, and. They figured, you know, we'll just leave, leave them alone. They're a and R guy that started. He said, "I know nothing about rock music. You just got, you guys make the records, and, and I'll leave it to you. Just tell me how much I got to spend," which was cool. Um, eventually, they started sending. They wanted to send somebody up to the studio to to have a listen. <laughs> so we developed, uh, you know, uh, you know, people here with their eyes. Let's face it. So. You know, in a bright in a bright room with with uh, the sun shining and uh, it's ninety degrees outside. You know, rock music doesn't work as well as it does in a in a closed environment with with dim lighting and speakers pounding. So uh, we developed a thing called we called it the audio illusion processor, and it was built have one of those big red lights on it. You know that. Um, I, I don't know what they have before LEDs. Anyway, like old electronics would have these big lights for the on off. And so <laughs> it had a cord coming out of it and it would plug somewhere underneath the console. It's a nowhere. So it's, uh, they'd send an A&R guy up to listen to a few tracks, right? So we'd entertain them, take them to dinner, go back to the studio. They had a couple of drinks, you know, turn the lights down low. Shove the volume up, you know, the big studio speakers pounding. <laughs> and, you know, finish off. And the guy, you know, he had a sweater tied around his neck. You know, those kind of guys like a college graduate. Yeah. You know, they're rather pompously going, well, you know, I think you could use just a little more snare drum. Right? Just to make a comment. We go, sure, no problem. We're going to run it through the audio illusion process and lead over, flick the switch on. The big red light came on and played it again. And he went, wow, that's amazing. Just it's perfect. <laughs> so, the the tricks of the studio. Yeah, I'd say, you know, you have to you have to give a hand job along the way. You know, it's just the way it had to be. But uh, just for, you know, record company relationships. But they virtually contributed not very much. Now, when you 
you know, think back to the collaborative process and how you guys started into that album. What was changing in terms of how you guys recorded music and how you guys collaborated, how you guys wrote music? Was it the same from the beginning for each, you know, to each album or are there differences like on Allied Forces? Um, I think there was more collaborative, uh, a, a more collaborative effort on all the songs on Allied Forces. Um, they were like, uh, well, I wrote this and here it is. Here's you play this, you play that. And that's, that's the end of it. That, that didn't happen at all on, on, on Allied Forces. It was always, you know, okay, here's a song. Now, how do we triumphize it? They make a triumph and make sure triumph owns this song. Not that, that Gil owns it or Mike owns it or Rick owns it. Like, how does triumph own it? Own this. And we, and we can sell it to the fans and it's going to work live on stage or not. You know, some songs you know aren't going to work live on stage, but they're great on record. So, uh, you know, we were all, you know, we were the three musketeers always, but for musically, we're the, really the three musketeers on, on, on that record for uh, uh, the, the contribution levels. Was it important for you guys when making music? Because you guys had such a great, you know, you guys were just awesome in terms of live. Your live performance, you know, was was always incredible. Was that always important for you guys to produce music that you could play live? And did you ever did you ever not put something on a record because of fear that you couldn't duplicate it? Uh, no, we were never afraid of that. If we if we couldn't duplicate it, we just didn't play it. <laughs> so, um, and the great thing about a three piece band is that uh, you know you could put more than three parts on a record. Uh, but then when you play live, you don't have to play it just like the record. You don't have to be the Eagles, for example. Whether you're a three-piece band, you change the arrangement. You have extended solos. You know the, the song can become more open. Um, uh, you know you don't necessarily have to have the same singer on the same part. Rick would just sing something that Gil would normally sing, or that kind of thing. So we're able to uh, construct a show that that was a good cross section of what we did with songs that would work live. Uh, we made sure we had enough good live songs. Like we knew Fight the Good Fight would work. We knew Allied Forces would work. We were a little concerned about Magic Power. We were concerned about actually that song in the studio. It was getting to a point where it may not even made the record. So we had a, a light bulb went off one day and we fixed it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's just a matter of like the show was the most important thing to us initially because you have to get fans. So how do you get fans? You go play and the word travels. You got to go see this band because we weren't exactly radio darlings when we started. And uh, so we always had a big show, even when we we're playing bars. We borrowed money from the Toronto Musicians Credit Union to uh, uh, to buy stuff. So we have a big show. So in answer to your question, I guess. Um, yeah, it's uh, the recording something that worked live was incredibly important but not the be all and end You just mentioned power not making, almost not making the record. What was it about that song that was a challenge and what changed as you guys were in the studio to, to make you guys put that on the album? Yeah, that was, uh, it was a, it was a tough road. We loved the song, but we couldn't triumphize it. It just wasn't working. You know, it's like, it just sounded, eh. it didn't have any, no great peaks, no great valleys. Uh, it's, it, you didn't even want to tack your foot to it at times. It was just, you know, we're, we're flogging. And uh, so we took, we, thank God we were able to, we took, you know, leave it alone for a while and then come back to it. 
and we're slogging again, and I wasn't working out very well. And I can't remember if it was me or, or Rick or Dill that said, you know what? Saw kinds of reminds me of The Who a little bit. So what would The Who do if this was their song? <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, the light bulbs went off. Well, the eight notes on piano. That would be cool. The Who does that all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, so that helped drive the choruses, right? It, 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 and then Gil got an idea. Well, I'm going to change the beat there. I go, okay, I'm going to play the, a different bass part than I was playing. And Rick, well, you know what? I'm going to add this guitar part. All of a sudden, the song took on a life. And, and it grew and grew and grew into the great song that it turned out. But it was close to getting the axe. It's interesting because it had such a beautiful opening to the song and such a peaceful type of vibe to it. And then it just drives. I mean, mm-hmm. it just, I mean, it's a great road trip song. I've always felt that. And it's still, <laughs> it, it still connects today. I mean, it's still a very powerful song today. Yeah. Um, it's, I can't go to get in my car here in Toronto or anywhere for that matter. I was in, uh, uh, we were in Philadelphia for a day, to, you know, in transit when we're not supposed to be flying. And there was the hotel radio under like Magic Power on the station in Philly. <laughs> so, do you think, are you comfortable with this album being your legacy album? Uh, I'd be comfortable with any album being a legacy album. Having a legacy is cool. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but I mean, is, I mean, I, I maybe rephrase that. Is, is this. Are you comfortable with people identifying this album as Triumph's best? Sure. Yeah. I, so, like it may not be everybody's favorite record, but it's a lot of people's favorite record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if I, if I had to go on my, if I had to pick an album to, to go on my gravestone and you don't know, remember me by this, I, I, I put that out there. And when you, 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 when you look back and you, you think of that album and then just the game after that and then, you know, as, as I mentioned early in the episode, we talked about the Us Festival over the weekend because it was the 38th anniversary of that. Yeah. You know, that, that in itself, that two-year period for you guys from, you know, Allied Forces to Just the Game to that celebration of music where rock music, hard rock, heavy metal really became the forefront after that event. And I, and I believe there's no other event in the in the united states that meant more to hard rock and heavy metal than that festival because there were millions like myself watching for, at home there were almost seven hundred thousand people in attendance it really drove the popularity of mtv which drove the popularity of all those bands because you guys even had thunder seven after that too which was a huge album yeah. it, just, it just drove that whole genre of music into the forefront what was it like to be a part of that well, it was amazing, you know. It was we, you know, from a career point of view, we were we were kind of stuck because the last show we had done in Los Angeles, we co co headlined the Rose Bowl with Journey, and you know, and there was like it was sold out, one hundred ten thousand people. It was huge. Uh, so that was our, we were due for an indoor play in the L.A. area. So we had booked. There was three shows going going to go on sale um, at Long Beach Arena. And, but we had to let the US Festival know, Oz and, and the crew there, whether, you know, we couldn't do both. We had to be one or the other. So it was really tough. But if you look at the acts, the, the acts they, they, they picked, you'd never get that collection of headliners uh, together on the, on, in, the, in the same room, on the same stage ever again. Uh, you know, so if you look at it, you know, you have Van Halen and Scorps and Triumph and Ozzy and Judas Priest, and Motley Crue and Quiet Riot, they were still local L.A. bands. They weren't had broken the scene yet. But 
uh, you know, to get those five headliners, all the top grocery bands on the road, uh, from, from a, a fan attendance point of view, on the, on the concert top 100 charts, so to speak, uh, it was amazing to play there with your peers, uh, to play that show. So we had, we went, you know what, this is going to be historic, the show. Um, if we blow it in LA, then we blow it in LA. So be it. You know, we're going to piss some fans. We're going to piss. It's just too bad that we pissed off a lot of fans in the Los Angeles area by doing another "quote unquote" outdoor show. Um, so it was. I think it was a wise move overall because we could still say no, nobody cares that it was. Uh, you know, thirty-eight years ago, thirty-nine years ago, that that Journey and Triumph sold out the Rose Bowl. <laughs> Nobody talks about that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, both shows are irrelevant. They're passing. You know, they, they happen. They're over. Everybody had a good time. See you next time. Uh, this show, it, it, you know, goes on forever, I think. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, I was eight years old watching on my television set. My parents had a barbecue that day, and my brother and I didn't leave the living room because we were watching – the whole thing. And, you know, my mother would come in, don't you want to come outside? It's beautiful outside. I'm like, no, <laughs> we're, we're watching something. And every time there was a break, you know, and they would switch sets or, you know, bands would, would, would take, you know, get off the stage. We'd go grab some food. We'd wolf it down really quick and we'd go right back to watching it. It was just, uh, it was an amazing experience to be that young to see that because after that, I mean, it was just, that's what it was all about for any kid my age or older that, you know, those bands were just, you know, constantly listened to at the park or at someone's house and it was just it was an amazing moment for a young rock band yeah for sure for sure you know it's and it's it's amazing somehow over the years and like i we we, we had kind of my personal philosophy was you can't take something that happens on a great big stage and put it on a 26 inch television and make it oh, yeah. make it work right yeah. both audio wise picture wise everything it just shrink it but i guess because of mtv more than anything over the years, you know, that, sh- that shrunkenness just became ingrained in people's minds and it didn't bother them, so to speak. You know, that's, I, I, I can't explain it, but I think, you know, as with anything, repetition, you, you get more comfortable with it. Were you surprised about the volume of people in attendance? We were coming in on the chopper to the site, flying at, you know, a thousand feet and looking down at this massive, amount of, of bodies like there was a small city of bodies that means it's acres and acres and hundreds of acres of bodies and you look over to the left and you see the like a whole bunch of kids outside the fence and then they push forward the fence and come down and they all come rushing in like they had no idea how many people were actually there because all the fences came down like it seemed like most of california and neighboring states and most of america was represented there in one way shape or form you know, people traveled for that event. So, uh, uh, yeah, we were looked, looked at each other and went, holy fuck, what do we got ourselves into here? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> well, it was a great show. It was a great concert. And, again, you know, the album Allied Forces, is such an impactful record on my youth growing up. Triumph was a band that I loved to listen to. Allied Forces, Just the Game, Thunder 7. Um, never surrender. I just I, I look back at that music and I always feel fond of it. And good times are always, mm. always connected to that music. Uh, we, we were kind of a fun band to be around too, as a fan. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, it was just, it was great music. And, and, uh, you know, I always tell the story to my son that, you know, that, you know, that music was so, you know, my, our, my parents were so against that music, you know, don't listen to that stuff. And that made me crave it even more, you know, to, <laughs> to smuggle in a triumph record or smuggle in a Judas priest record, covert ops to get it in my bedroom. <laughs> you know, our, 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 we're, we're a struggle back then, but I look back on it and laugh and, and think fond of those memories. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know? Yeah. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Well, Mike, it's been a blast to talk about Allied Forces and the band Triumph. Thank you very much for doing this. Great, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, wish you well and be safe and be well and uh, onwards. Once again, everybody, I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Take care of yourselves. Stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will chat again soon. Thank you. Something's at the edge of your mind. You don't know what it is. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.